Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Buzz Podcast. And this time we are looking at True Detective Season 4, Episode 4. And I am, of course, joined by Dave Hendrick to discuss it. Well, man, how are you? I'm good. I'm feeling much better, thankfully enough. To, uh, so I had some kind people reach out to me during the week and tell me that I sounded, and I quote, dreadful on the few <laughs> podcasts that I tried to do. So, you know, <laughs> so it was good to hear. Yeah, I, I, it's it's amazing how clearly it comes through in, in the voice, and especially if you're having to stop to the wheeze or like I was um, last week with the with the nasal thing and it's 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 not really conducive to this kind of work unfortunately but we do try to battle on and um, you know, I see Dave's already back up and running with his, his daily reds and stuff like that and has done about 49 podcasts today already I have actually been sort of completely knocked out by something in terms of just pure fatigue and aches and pains I'm hoping it doesn't take in the same way as it manifests with Dave there in the chesty cough and all the rest of the horror show. But um, so far, I'm just going to keep stubborn and say that I'm uh, keeping it at bay with as much uh, legal medication as I can possibly get my hands on. We are here to talk about this latest episode in the True Detective uh, Season 4 saga. Now, a little bit of anecdotal stuff for me to start. I'm talking to people at work who are watching it. They're mad into it. Um, but I got I got two separate texts from people after episode four. Um, and they were along the lines of, what the fuck is going on, Trev? And I thought, oh, that I did not see that coming. Because I thought episode four was possibly, with the exception of the fact that there are a few real jump scares and really leaning into the supernatural bits, I thought it was the most sort of pedestrian of the episodes in terms of, well, there's nothing really that wildly surprising here. Like, obviously, that supernatural stuff is quite shocking. But people seem to just, that was when the confusion hit. I would have thought it was the maybe first or second or third episode, but no, that's where it hit. Now, that's been the sort of feedback I've been getting, but people are still engaged. The only negative things I've heard, and I haven't gone looking for it, Dave, to be honest, this week like I did last week, but the only negative things I've heard are sort of entirely predictable, um, where people are probably armed with some sort of prejudice beforehand, and it's sort of, it's it's eking its way in to whatever they say about it. I did hear one person just say, this is just flat out bad, and he didn't have any particular agenda apart from thinking that he wasn't entertained. So I, I absolutely appreciate opinions like that as, as much as I appreciate, you know, people fanboying or fangirling. So far, what are you making of it? Like, has this one has this one cemented your, your enjoyment of it? Has it taken from it? Uh, what sort of feedback are you getting? I don't know if you're watching it, say, with your missus or if anyone you know is watching it or what's going on there. Yeah, myself and the missus are watching it. And um, we're both very much invested, both very much enjoying it. She made the point that it was sort of the, the episode that the least unfolded. It was almost like a, almost like a bridge episode. 
you used the word pedestrian. It was kind of like a mad twisty road that finally hit a little bit of a straight and just carried on on the straight. Didn't look for any additional detours. I think we both thought that was in, in many ways a positive. Um, I've seen again, a few people that have said they don't like it. That's fine. It's not going to be for everything, for everybody. Not everything is. Nothing is for everybody. There's no one size fits all. Like, you can look at the greatest shows of all time. There's people that don't like season one of True Detective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's it's the yardstick people are using to beat this one with. And listen, that's a a very, very high bar. And also, I think an awful lot of people, uh, what's coming out is, they're not overtly saying it, but they're irked by the supernatural side of things. They don't like that. They want it to be more sort of uh, uh, nuts and bolts detective stuff. And I've heard it said, like in season one, like what were they watching in season one? In season one, there's horrible occultic stuff going on. Yes, it's more rooted in sort of horrible, perverse, gritty, pedophilic, you know, sort of um, dark, dark stuff. But it is tied up and around and into occultic themes for sure so i don't know maybe it's just the overt horror nature of this one we've got a lot of body horror we've got a lot of overt well that couldn't happen could it or is this actually happening or what do they mean they're seeing dead people And there's all these kind of like so i think it's quite overt so maybe if you don't buy into that maybe that's going to be a problem for you i I guess that's probably what it is for most people actually yeah and that's the thing and look you mentioned it as well look there's, there's, there's the jump scare factor some people just don't like that do you know, mm. some people don't like horror at all. And that's cool. Absolutely fine. Personally, I love horror. So for me, that's well in my wheelhouse. Um, I, I think as well, like, there is there is going to be the hardline element who are, you know, Nick Pizzolatto or Pizzolatto uh, fanboys. And because he's obviously made it clear he's not really keen, they've decided they're not keen either. Now, his yeah. reasoning is is different. He's got there's definitely some bitterness there with him. But mm. look, it it is what it is. I think the majority of people that approach this season with the right mind frame, which was to just take it as its own body of work, I think are enjoying it. They might not be loving it. There's obviously a wide ranging scale of of how much you might like something, and that's that's absolutely cool. But the, the only thing I I dislike when I see people giving opinions on stuff is when they try and force comparisons to other things. Like, you know, there's no reason to force a comparison with this season and the first season, other than the fact that they're both under the True Detective banner. As yeah. I said to you last week, I think if this had just come out under the banner Night Country and, and didn't have the, the True Detective um, moniker, I actually think people would be a lot fairer and there'd be a lot less negativity. And it's not like there's been huge negativity, but I think there will be an awful lot less even than what there's been. Um, I'm glad to hear that you didn't listen to any um, 
overproduced, <laughs> under-talented podcasts in the week that's passed. So that's that's <laughs> growth on your behalf. I felt a bit guilty about exposing our listeners to that kind of nonsense. Um, and then also felt a little bit guilty that some of our listeners might be nodding along in agreement with some of that nonsense. And I don't want to be divisive. I do want I, I do want this to be a little warm no, hug leave, podcast. Leave, leave the divisiveness to me. That's my wheelhouse. Well, yeah, but not in this show, buddy. No. Not in this show. Yeah, we, we, we are actually trying to find our better selves on this one. So I have, I have a different way of starting this. It's interesting. We're both talking about how this is the episode where least twists and turns happen. I've, I've never taken as many notes uh, on my second watch through as I did on this one. So we'll use those entirely to just skip from episode to episode or scene to scene. And, and, yeah. and we, we can land wherever you want. But if you don't mind, I have a few questions here that I was left with at the end of this, at the end of the four episodes so far. So I'm just going to read them out. We may or may not come back to them. And you may or may not, I don't know if you have a pen or something beside you, you may or may not want to just focus in and try and help me answer one of them. But I am left with far more questions and answers as I think should be the aim of a show like this. So the first question, probably the predominant one, because it ties straight into the supernatural thing is, so why do the people of Ennis see things? And is it, I wonder, going to turn out to be, and I'd be a little bit disappointed by this if it was, is it going to be as something as prosaic as the shit water, some sort of pollution issue in the mine? Is the mine actually going to be what Rose thinks is some sort of a portal place. Why do all these things, <laughs> when they are appearing to Evangeline, point at her like a scary uh, meme that we've seen doing the rounds on the internet? Why is Liz not more rattled by the fucking one-eyed bear? Why is she not rattled by that? Why is she going straight into, yeah, there's no such thing as God, all your hoax pokes budget. You just had a one-eyed bear that is the resistance resembles your child's toy stop you cause you to crash and basically look in your window or did that not happen that's the other part of the question uh is the spiral thing going to turn out to be some sort of a cult again in a reach back to season one is it a dna reference that just occurred to me this week and what are all the eye references about? So you had the bear, I mentioned that. You had the woman with the eye patch at the um, protest meeting. You had uh, Heiss, who's got one eye sort of wonky and he's got that burnt out cornea. You've got loads of drawings in Leah's room with eyes in them. And then you've got Holden covering one eye playing that peekaboo game with his mom. So there's obviously some sort of... Uh, highly obvious symbolism there that's going to play out, I hope. And then the last thing is the lighthouse. What is that lighthouse symbolism about? Is the light actually what we think? Is it good? Is it hope? And when you're walking away from the light, like Julia does in this episode, is that you walk into death? I don't know. Loads of questions there, Dave. Feel free to ignore all of them and we'll get started in the episode. Or is there anything there that grabs you in terms of something you wouldn't mind uh, respond to or one that you can relate to a question that's also been uh, preoccupying you no th- th- there's a couple there that did pop to me as i watched this um the the, the scene with the one-eyed bear was is the most obvious one because like you said it's her her child had the one-eyed bear and the bear comes right up to her window and again i was left wondering did she see that in like was she knocked out and imagine that happening because 
or, or did it actually happen? Like, we didn't get any clarity because when Evangeline comes over to her house, she never mentions that she had the crash. And we don't hear no. any more about the crash. We don't hear how she got her vehicle out of the snowbank and back to her house either. She's She crashes the car, the bear appears, and the next thing we know, she's back at her gaff. So, you know, what happens there? The the why do people see things one is is one that's been playing on my mind and myself and my, my, my other half were talking about this and we were saying like it, you know it's only a six episode uh, se- season so yeah. she was making the point that not a lot gets revealed in this this episode you, you would have thought that now as we enter into the back half of it we, we'd start to get more and more reveals we didn't get any big reveals in this episode so she was saying like is it going to be a thing where we either get no information about certain things where they're just left unanswered yeah which would frustrate the bejesus out of me same or is it going to be that we get like you said is it going to be something very straightforward and a little bit disappointing like well the mine have poisoned the water and the the land and that's why they see things because they're all a bit mushed in the head because they've been ingesting whatever the mines have been putting into the ground. So there is the possibility that that becomes a, a bit of a damp squib of a, a plot line, or it could be something that doesn't get explained and is just sort of left unanswered. Both of them would be disappointing outcomes for me. I, I hope she lands the plane on that. Yeah, same. It, it's quite a it's quite a big theme through the whole the whole show. A subtle kinda, one, but a big one. Yeah. She has to stick the landing with that. Has to. And and here's the other thing as well. I read a quote from Miss Lopez during the week where she said, and this is gonna this might be a revelation to some people who haven't come across this. She said that the killer, killers, I think was the quote, have been in front of your eyes for the whole show. So it's not like we're gonna find Clark and that's gonna be the bad guy. That's what she that this is the this is the quote. Now maybe I missed interpreting it maybe it's a red herring maybe she's deliberately fucking with us but that led me to wonder okay well who might it be and obviously the the obvious one is like oh hank's in charge of some redneck cult of 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 spiral worshiping uh crazies right that's where i would have gone immediately but i saw this incredibly interesting and you might think nonsensical but worth a watch documentary on youtube about someone who is positing the idea uh, that Navarro is actually the killer and that she dissociates and that uh, she's, she's, you know, having similar experiences to what her sister and her mother did. But that that was a bit of a wild out there theory. But what about that concept, Dave, that the killers are actually in front of us the whole time? The Navarro one did cross my mind. I haven't really? Seen, yeah, I haven't seen that on YouTube, but it did cross my mind. Because there are little spells where she does disassociate and yeah, she goes yeah, into yeah. an almost trance-like block. And I did wonder, like, given the, the, the history of mental health, given there's definitely some underlying bitterness with her, given the, um, the, the unresolved cases of the past, there, there, it has crossed my mind that is it something she's doing and we saw in this episode, like, 
the violence in in the fight scene yeah. where she she almost completely loses all sense and reason and all, and I was thinking like she's one step from completely having an out of body experience here now obviously we'll we'll get into it she doesn't she doesn't win that fight because she's so badly outnumbered but in the 1v1 part of that fight that's a grown man and she puts him on his backside multiple times and like yeah. we know Carrie Reese is a professional boxer so she can carry that off she has credibility in that but is there more to Navarro that we don't know in terms of her own background that might lead to lead to her having that ability to take down a grown man or multiple grown men in the one go yeah and in one of the big scenes in this particular episode she does say that she suspects that she's going to suffer the same fate uh, as mm. her mother and sister and she says it comes for us and she says she's cursed um so maybe that that's an, a further hint that you know there is this maybe it's a slowly descending condition but let's get into this because like i said there's a huge amount of notes here in terms of just getting through the incidents we probably we probably will pick and choose where we decide to land and have a chat but we begin with navarro still listening to the white noise um and can't sleep the white noise is there obviously to you get the impression liz liz is sorry it's it's in danvers house lizzie get the impression is a troubled soul herself and a very very highly active mind and we see her not able to sleep it's 3 25 a.m and what she does is turn off the white noise and decide to watch that horrifying annie k video again several times which is clearly disturbing the hell out of her her reaction is to go into um leanne sort of fix her hair and we see this affection this maternal affection um and as she's leaving the room, we can hear Annie's screams in the background. That's just, again, some of that clever sound editing that they do with this. But here we have a little question, um, which I, I, it struck me at the time uh, last week. And I was wondering, where is this environment that Annie's in? And th- there's quite a lot in this episode about the fact, uh, highlighting the fact that these are some kind of ice caves, that these um, bones we can see in the background, we find out later on from one of, our, uh, one of Liz's many ex-lovers that they are... Um, ancient uh, and that there are ice caves in the region where Annie's body disappeared so this is quite an interesting twist um, and I'm just going to take it up as far as the next little episode you can take what you want out of it then because as we see Liz out and about driving she comes across Julia who's stripping her clothes off like the guys from the, uh, the Salal Institute did in a way that's reminiscent of that um, Dyatlov past thing that I told you about in episode one. Um, and it was explained to us by prior in episode one or two as well. Uh, and she's obviously incredibly distressed and initially sort of fights back. But we again see for the second scene in a row, this incredible caring, um, like I say, maternal, kindly side to Liz, who's as hard bitten as they come. Like, I mean, uh, uh, there's something about the way um, Jodie Foster says, ah, fuck off, or, you know, stuff like that. She has, there's a, there's a bang of the Irish uh, uh, about her in the way she's, she, I like the way she swears. It's very good. And she, it's, uh, her hard oars are, are quite, quite a thing. So, yeah, I thought that was a very interesting way that we begin. And it's sort of that opening sequence ends with Navarro thanking Liz and, 
were making these steps back towards each other that they, 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 they have been threatened to be made so mm. far. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It is it is obviously baby steps for the two of them. They're both quite prideful women. And there's obviously there's there's something we don't know. There's still more that we don't know about that incident, that double homicide um, or murder-suicide as it was. Um, we know more than we did last week, where we found out more than we had the week before. So I assume we'll get even more in episode five. But there's clearly something more to it than what we're being told, because both of them are kind of beaten around what actually happened and why they fell out. Mm. Um, but this was interesting. Like, again, you mentioned uh, with with Liz and the way you know her reaction was to go in and fix Leah's hair and that maternal side. But I think we see that maternal side as well when she is dealing with Julia. Like it's it's very much that kind of almost like an aunt, kind of an older, like I'll look after you, I'll take care of you, calming, soothing, because Julia's in complete disassociative disassociative state and has clearly lost her grip on reality as she starts to strip her clothes, like you said, like the lads from the mine. But the the theory behind why they took their clothes off has been hypothermia. She's not suffering from hypothermia here. So it's something else. And like we've said before, there's the mention of she multiple times through different episodes and it we don't know what she or what it are. We don't know if they're the same thing. Navarro mentions later on, like you said, how it comes for us. Did it get those lads? Is that what happened? Is that why they stripped their clothes off? Were they, will we find out that basically, like just to use an example, like some sort of like worm in the brain type thing where Julia and Evangeline's mother had it first, but it, it was slow, slow working with them. Whereas with the others, it was more impactful, kind of immediate. They went from perfectly normal to all of a sudden they're running around and taking their clothes off out in the, in the ice. I'm I'm really curious to, to find out more about that side of things. Like, is there the same thing that's aff- afflicting uh, Navarro's sister? Is that what afflicted the the lads from the the, the research centre, but in a, in a more fast reacting way? Yeah, and listen to you there. I'm I'm actually going to be gutted if they don't go full. Yeah, there's some weird shit happening here. I don't necessarily need a monster, but I will be very very disappointed if there's not some. Oh, you know, nature goddess thing, at least, because there's something it, it's too much stuff to resolve with some sort of pat um, scientific materialist response. I can't see a way that you can just go, oh, like like the, you know, the Dallas thing. It was all a dream. You know, I, I really don't think that's possible, but they have shot it in such a way that, you know, Liz experiences what Liz experiences, like we said there a second ago on her own. 
And Evangeline experiences all her visions on her own. Like when she's with, um, is it Lund, um, that scary scene in the last episode, she's on her own. When she sees, uh, when we have the flashback scene, and again, that's a really good point you make. Like, is Liz a reliable narrator? Um, or is she not a reliable narrator? We don't know. We, we do know that she has, in different uh, situations, told fibs. Um, but there's a real set to between them uh, in this episode later on about, you know, you you saw something and, and, and um, Navarro denying it. Um, but we see, we see that she sees something. We see that she sees some uh, horrific version of the lady who's been killed screeching and pointing at her and later yeah. on she sees her sister float past and then she sees her sister screaming into her face as well so there th- these things happen when she's on her own and they have a very obvious impact on her um so it's, just, it's set up in a way that it could, there's plausible deniability i guess is what i'm saying so I, I hope they don't go for the 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 cop out let's move it along we see uh liz is being is told that you know um the cat the that guy, uh, Captain, whatever, is coming over, taking control of the bodies. That kind of stuff is about to happen. And a really nice little detail. At one stage, he's in Liz's office and he takes some water in a water uh, container and he sniffs it before he puts it into the plant. Mm. I think that might be a low key little subtle nod that he knows that there's some sort of fuckery going on. Certainly, he's very aware of the dodgy water. But why you would think there would be dodgy water in a container that someone's brought into work, I don't know. But it's rare. I thought that was an interesting little throwaway. Do you know how Sorry, people say, that, oh, they're a bit rare over there. It must be something in the water. It's quite an Irish thing. Oh, yes. Yeah, pe- yeah. People from at Boyd, there's something in the water over there. We, we You know, now people say that. Like, maybe it's kind of a little kind of inside, you know, he's from the bigger city, so yes. oh, the, the boys yeah. out in the boonies there's something in the water out there maybe it because yeah. obviously she's been sent there she's not from this area she's not from ennis she's been sent to ennis kind of an, a, as an outpost and i wonder is it like a little kind of you know this is what we think of you back where i where i work sort of thing do you know Absolutely. And if you're watching this and you're not thinking of Flint, Michigan, and you're not thinking of Obama yeah. drink, drinking the water performatively and saying, hmm, it's good, uh, you know, there's probably something wrong to you. Like Michael Moore made a whole movie about it. Go and check it out if you haven't seen it. Uh, he, he may not be your cup of tea, but he's spot on the money with that particular uh, observation. Um, and there's still no improvement in that place, which is quite remarkable. Uh, we then learn about Otto Heiss, because prior, we know prior's gift is to go on the computer computer and find all the things and Liz has asked him to see if there's anybody who's who's suffered with similar symptoms to the um, Salal boys and already called them the Halal boys uh, and she he, he digs up this Otto Heiss guy who um, had ruptured eardrums and both corneas were burnt um, and again you know he this guy has a history of violence and he'll come back into it later on um, then there's the little scene where yet again we come across another person who uh, who who Liz has has has, has uh, slept with, um, much to Navarro's amusement as they call round to that teacher, that geography teacher's house and looking for help and finding um, ice caves and maps and all that type of thing and um, they discuss they pretty much decide that the. Uh, there are ice caves near the body, which means where the body was found, which means Annie was killed uh, in one place 
uh, and then move to another to send a message. This is this is this is the suggestion, and I think all of this is to make us think: yes, there is a killer, right? That's basically I think what that's all about. Um, yeah, uh, and then we find out in that scene as well with the teacher that the bones in the wall are likely prehistoric whale bones, um, and that those caves are a death trap, um, and that cave system we discover. Uh, roll or drum roll please was mapped out by a guy called Otto Heiss so that little section (laughs) uh, there was a lot of stuff that happened quite quickly there and had to tie a few things together but that's what happens when you have a big sprawling story like this I guess Dave it is like that's the thing it is a very wide ranging story it's quite an ambitious story that she's put together here and obviously given there's only six episodes, she is having to sort of open things up a little bit quicker, maybe than say what happened in season one, where they had like what, 10 episodes. Um, but Otto all, all of a sudden becomes prevalent for two reasons, despite the fact that we didn't know who he was or didn't, you know, beforehand. Um, so now you want to know more about Otto. Now, now we need to find Otto. We need to see where he's at, what he's doing. And can he help here? And I think it's I think it's really well done. I did find I did find the scene where they go to the to the, the teacher's house. The the uh, initial part of it just hilarious. The way uh, Danvers insists that uh, Navarro be closer to the door <laughs> yeah. and kind of stands half turned away, and the door opens and the wife is absolutely disgusted <laughs> to find Danvers on her doorstep. And uh, Navarro turns around again to ask her, is there anyone in the town that you haven't fucked? And then your man <laughs> appears and just... And the way he goes, he says no. Seems like he's answering Navarro's question because of how it's said. But he's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. saying, no, you can't be here because it's <laughs> Christmas Eve. Which is, it just plays really well. It's it's very well done. Even as he's so awkward when his wife comes in, he bangs his head off the light and stuff like that. It's it's done it's done very very well. And if Liz is the proverbial fuck machine, uh, and fair play to her, then poor old Hank is quite the opposite. As we see him um, go to the airport to pick up his uh, foreign uh, bride, who's been. Uh, leeching away all his money. Uh, he stands there. He's got a little rabbit in his hands as a little token gift. And for a minute, he thinks the air hostess is actually going to be her, but no. Mm. And the plane goes off and we see him go back to the office and break out the booze. And uh, it, it's. It, it, and then later on, we see him in the house. And he's covered the bed with rose petals and he's picking them up one by one in what is probably the most tragic scene I've ever I've ever. <laughs> come across it's just awful he's got like a solitary bottle of pink champagne in the fridge uh you know i i if the idea is that we're supposed to laugh at hank then i think for me the sympathy thing won out there a bit even though he is a yeah he's a terrible set of lads obviously yeah. you know he's a very he's abusive to his son all the rest of it but then he seems to be this one of these kind of you know torn type characters that he, there's probably some um some some amiable things about him and um I don't know if the idea was to sneer at him uh, over the course of those scenes but it kind of had the opposite effect uh and we saw same even with me. Yeah, yeah a little warm, warm interaction between him and the son and him I, 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 did, did you notice as well where the son says to him you didn't send her any money did you 
Yeah, and he, and he doesn't answer. He yeah. sidesteps the question, but yeah. the son knows why he sidestepped. And there's a little sort of drop of the head like that. What have you done here? But yeah. like you said, I think I think it is to, you know, it, it, like it, it, it's incredibly pathetic that the scene of this man standing with a little furry bunny waiting for this woman. And he, he clearly doesn't really know what she looks like either because... No. The air hostess, he, he, he genuinely thinks it's the air hostess, and obviously it's not, and then goes back, like you said, and he, the, way, the way he picks the petals up one by one, because what most men would do there is they just grab a hold of the duvet, and they'd give it a flick, and they'd send them all into a pile, and in that pile they would stay, but him picking them up one by one, like it, it does kind of drive that sympathy side, because as we said before with Hank, like he's clearly... He's clearly a terrible set of lads. There's, there's not there's not a whole lot of redeeming features that we've seen about him in the few episodes thus far. But there's definitely there's a loneliness to him. And you wonder is is some of the reason he's, he is the way he is with the son because the son left him and went and had his own family. And like. As we've we've found out, like he's he's sort of been on the take as well, and you'd wonder did did his did his life spiral really badly because when he was like we saw it with the ice skates in the last episode, clearly he was an attentive father, and the fact that he kept those ice skates, which most people would have chucked out because the son is what late twenties now, c- clearly you know those skates are twenty plus years years old. But he's clearly got this sentimental fe- uh, feature to himself. There's a loneliness. At some point, he must have been fairly decent at his job to yeah. have been promoted to the rank that he's in. But so doesn't doesn't he say that the the the, the wife left them? Wasn't that a point that was made at one point? I think yeah, I think so. I think you're so, right, actually. So, so that, that could have what been what broke him or whatever. What broke him, and then like all he had left was Peter. And then Peter left him as well. And maybe some of the abuse towards Peter is intended for the wife. And he's almost transplanting Peter into the place. Like, this is how I'd like to speak to the wife I saw her again. I'd be harsh and critical and not necessarily abusive, but maybe he would be. Well, Leah does call him an animal. Leah refers yeah, to him as an animal. So an obviously animal, that physicality yeah. has happened before. Before. Uh, would be that would be the suggestion and and the way they were trying uh, the way he was going up until the end of the last episode was i was genuine so hank is going to be the, the like the leader of some sort of cult of crazies here or something there's, yeah he's definitely going to be you know there's going to be the equivalent of the, the 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 good old boy network that we saw in season one and hank's going to be right in on it and we know he's corrupt we've yeah uh, and, and like, he might well be we might still get to that that he is the leader of, of this sort of cult of hillbillies but he might also be almost a victim to them like he might be a patsy someone that they realized was weak and that they were able to sort of um manipulate to their own because clearly he's been manipulated by this russian who's played on the loneliness and there might be more in that as well is that somehow connected to the hillbillies? Did they put him in touch with this? Because how else would Hank get in touch with this ru- Russian woman? He doesn't seem like a very internet savvy type of guy. No. And as I said to you before, like he's clearly not 
very technologically sound or, or you know, modern in his thinking. Because when she asked him for pictures, he was sending pictures of pictures. So yeah. he's a little bit simple in that regard as well. So there's a lot more to find out with Hank. And I, I, I think, think so. I, I think he's a really interesting character. That scene with the with the skates, there's a line that he says, I don't think we mentioned it last week, where um, he says to Peter, blood is blood. And again, that just made me think, OK, there's definitely going to be something here because there is sort of the um, there's very much the community is riven. And it seems to be mostly the natives, uh, uh, native people who are um, against the mine. And then you've got the people who have been who come there because of the mine who are nominally the outsiders or whatever uh, the white people or whatever and again there's ways that they could go with that i hope they don't drive it down too much of a dodgy route there but it's interesting for sure it's set up well and if we get a little hank cameo we also get a little rose cameo now i'm sure fiona shaw loved this particular episode so all she had to do is get up get herself up in a nice dress uh, swan around smoking a few fags and having a few drinks and i think she had all of about five or six lines uh, it's a weird little scene and she just basically we just see that Rose has fucking gone to town and really Christmas to be Jesus out of her house. There's food everywhere. Who it's for? I have no idea. Again, there's a fondness between her and Navarro that I really want to get to the bottom of. I have a theory, but I'm not I'm not prepared to release it just yet. Uh, and she uh, it, one of her key lines in the little scene with Navarro, who just calls round for a bit of Christmas cheer. Uh, she, of course, gets in this line about, you know, she had to do all the decorating herself because the elves were drowned in global warming. And that could be read as, yeah, global warming is a lot of bollocks or, yes, global warming is very real. And I'm not sure where they're driving this, honestly, to be honest. Um, and we also find out that she's a very serious professor in a very serious school who was writing very serious papers. And she walked away from all of that. She called it meaningless. She called it noise, all that academia. Um, she said she was looking at the stuff that she was writing and she just thought, what's the fucking point of this? And this, mm. she was attracted to this place where it's much quieter. <laughs> Again, quote, except for all the fucking dead. <laughs> so, so I didn't know what to make of this scene. It seemed a bit... It wasn't jarring. It was just an extra layer of character building. But I'm not sure what I learned. No, see, I was the same. Like, she doesn't tell you what university, doesn't tell you what she thought, doesn't tell you what she was writing papers on. But I assume at some point we'll find out. The The line, it's really quiet except for the dead, I thought was really good. And again, plays into more of, you know, what the, the the different sort of like remember that that scene with um with Peter and the delivery guy in the truck yes and the delivery guy you know says says different things to him about about sort of the dead and kind of playing up that kind of supernatural afterlife sort of thing he's basically was, almost he's almost sneering at Peter and saying come come on lad cop on to yourself it's it, it's it's Ennis this yeah. shit happens you know that that's you know exactly I mean? it and yeah she play, like. She's playing into that as well, but she's doing it with Navarro, who already knows that, so they don't need to go any further into the weeds on it. But I did think it was a really interesting... um, I did think it was really interesting that when Navarro calls round to Rose, Rose doesn't know Navarro's coming. No. And yet Rose is all dressed up for company. So who's her company to be? I know. Seriously, what is all the food and decoration about? It's remarkable. She's cooked for 40. (laughs) She's cooked for 40. 
And we can only we can only assume Travis has a terrible appetite on him. That's the thing. Travis is a hungry <laughs> boy. Uh, you'd be hungry too if you were dead. So it's just you know it, it's 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 really interesting. Like was was she going to put the food out as some sort of offering? I like I don't know. I it, it, I thought that scene was really interesting. Didn't just, give I, us I, too I, much, but gave us quite a bit at the same time. I'm just hoping we cut back to it next week and we see uh, Rust, who's gotten over his nihilistic attitude and he's just a big fat lad now and he's delighted to come over from his mammy's cooking. That's basically what I'm hoping we get in episode five. Uh, so to, to push along the story, we see this little interaction with um, uh, Dervla Kirwan's uh, McKittrick, who has called Liz because... The mine offices have been uh, uh, vandalized with the word murderers, and we work out that it's actually Leah who's done it. And um, we see Liz having to ask McKittrick, whose husband she slept with, not to press charges. Um, Leah doesn't take this intervention well or in the way that she should. Uh, in fact, all she does is get annoyed with Liz for taking their side. Um, she's very much acting out in sort of what you would expect more of an early teenage way and she seems to be a little bit older than that but she's very much sort of like I say pinning her colours to the the, the, the cause and uh, Liz by dint of being both an outsider and white and her mammy uh, her you know adaptive mammy is getting the brunt of it um, and Christmas is totally ruined you know we see Liz chucking the turkey in the in the bin and she hits the vodka hard and of course because it's Liz she decides to do some work and work for Liz means watching that horrible Annie video again and again and again until she actually works something out. Um, she works out that there's a power cut in it and there's a power cut in the Clark video that the Spanish lad made when he was uh, doing his little video for his socials. Um, and she decides she's going to ruin Pryor's night and gets him to Giving some Navarro some back up as they head out to the nomad camps to Tagak Scaff and see if they can find out anything more from Tagak about this um, situation. Um, I, it, 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 it's also in the background, little honorable mention for Mazzy Stars into Dust playing in the background, which will enhance anything. The soundtrack is really good and it seems to be a little bit on the nose at times if you listen to the lyrics. Yeah. My hearing's not great, Dave, so I often have the you know subtitles then so you know the way sometimes song lyrics would flow over your head but i'm seeing them and they're often very on the nose like in terms of the subject matter of what's happening on the screen and uh the the, the lines that are, are playing in the background it, it is it is quite effective it's been well done that that aspect of things i think it is like when we when we do our wrap-up uh episode after we do you know the, the six when we do episode episode seven for us I think the music is something we should definitely have a good mm. look at because I do think it's been brilliantly done, um, including just the, the opening theme song, which I think is tremendous. But a um, couple of notable things that came out of this, uh, when Dervla Kerwin first made her appearance for the first time in this episode, um, I mentioned her to my missus and I mentioned Bally Cassangel and I was horrified to learn that my missus had never seen Bally Cassangel. Um, oh. which is, you know, it's it's Irish TV royalty. Um, even even if one of the primary characters is, is Stephen Tompkinson, who's obviously an English gentleman, a very good actor. 
but it is a tremendous Irish show. The first couple of seasons are among the best things that have ever been made in this country. Um, the other thing was when uh, when Danvers is having the argument with Leah and Leah's getting ready to leave and Danvers says something along the lines for just stay and have something to eat. I'm going to cook the turkey. And <laughs> Leah leaves and then the camera comes to this turkey looking very lonely on a table. Like that's turkey going to take about seven hours to cook. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you weren't just <laughs> yeah. throwing it in for twenty minutes, like, um, which I just thought was funny because it's it's clearly very late on Christmas Eve by this point. Well, you assume it is. It's hard to tell because it's daytime, but everybody was finishing work and stuff. So you're guessing, and all the other stuff has happened after they left work. So you're guessing it's probably about eight or nine o'clock. Considering uh, Peter gets the phone call goes off with thing and then comes home and gets straight into bed. You're yeah. guessing that when the scene with, with Leah and and Danvers happens, it's probably about eight or nine o'clock and she's only going to start cooking the turkey at that point. Um, which, you know, it just seems silly because you'd be up till four o'clock in the morning and cook it that way. Well, yeah, it, made, it made for a good scene and good symbolism. It did. Was, very, very good. Yeah. And, and the, as well as that, where are you going? Where are you going? I'll go to such and such. But she obviously Leah had already called Peter's missus to come and pick her up because she walks his door and the missus is sitting there waiting for her. Yeah. So like it, it is just it is very, very good. It's it's really well done. I thought the scene at the mine where uh, where Danvers and Derv Kerwin have their little back and forth was quite interesting because there's that little power struggle. But again, we see from Danvers this maternal side that she has towards Leah, where she's saying, like, she's basically pleading, like, don't fuck up my kid's life here. You know, yeah. if, she, if she gets a criminal record, it's going to fuck her life up. Now, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of career potential in the Ennis area for anybody other than maybe going into the mines or joining the police. Now, joining the police would be wiped out for with a criminal record and going to work in the mines would be wiped out for if there was a criminal record that was relating to the mines against her. But I just thought it was interesting the way Dervla Kerwin's character sort of, there's a, there's a, a moment where she realises she I never have yeah. the upper hand on you. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the roles are reversed, and there's a smugness, and the way she just turns and walks away. Yeah. Uh, Derva Kerwin's a very underrated actress, it should be pointed out. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's well, she's looking for a lady who must be getting into, uh, you know, a slightly more advanced age, uh, fair play to her. Uh, and just uh, that Mazzy. 52 there you go that Mazzy star song is playing over Leah actually as we see her kind of bonding with the aforementioned um, um, Pete Pryor's missus I can't remember her name and the lady formerly known as Laundromat Grandma uh, <laughs> and they're making some sort of you know bread or pastry or something and it seems to be a very overtly we are she is now with her people type thing and um, it makes it all the sadder I think that Liz is on her own and now Liz is charging across drunk driving to get to uh, 
uh, Eccleston's character uh, who's whitening his teeth and watching Elf. And it's all quite comic, this scene. Um, and uh, she finds his gizmo in the middle of sort of a semi-seduction scene. And it breaks down into a chat where she he actually tells her that he was she was a better cop than him. But he says, you were terrible with people. And after Jake and Holden, that's her son and her ex, it got worse. Nobody wanted to work with you. Nobody wants to work with you now. And the only thing that I, I got out of this actually is he tries to stop her from driving home. Navarro tried to stop her earlier on from coming to, you know, do the Tagak run. Um, I, I should have mentioned there at Tagak's place, they find a spiral on the ground. They find Tagak's, some of Tagak's uh, possessions kind of neatly left. And then this little piece of rock or stone with the spiral on it. And when they come out, the rest of the nomads are none too happy at seeing the police again in this mm. place that's supposed to be immune to the police. And when Navarro, I don't know which of them it is, I think it's Navarro, holds up the little piece of rock with the spiral on it, the threatening dogs begin to bark at the freaking spiral. So again, listen, there's something here. And it's, again, that the connection between nature and that force, whatever it is, as embodied, as uh, symbolized by that spiral. I had forgotten to mention that, and it is important just to throw it back. Yeah. But but to 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 keep our our our, our momentum going, um, like we say, we get those revelations about how, about um you know um Liz and her 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 professional life falling apart and everybody hating her now because she's so harsh on everybody. Um, but what I couldn't get over, Dave, and it's just worth probably a pause here is, do you remember her absolute rage at that drunk woman? who was drunk driving. Yes. I mean, the anger in her was, was monumental. Yeah. Uh, she wasn't just pissed off or, or, or inconvenienced. She was fucking furious. And then she goes and does the same thing. And I'm just wondering what, what sort of low level of self-esteem has she gotten to that she would do that same thing that seemed to be, I was wondering like, was she, is there, we're going to find out there's something about a drunk driver and her son and her, her, and her son, ex. That's what that's, that's you where know. my mind went when we saw, we saw that originally. Yeah, the anger that, there. Yeah, 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 exactly. And especially because the the drunk driver almost hurt another woman with a child. So that was, you know, that was where my my mind went. And then to do this, yeah, it's 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 just very very odd. Like, how low have you gotten here? What's the what's the added underlying? thing that's that's triggered this is it the fact that leah has walked out on you and you now feel like you don't have anything left that's worth worth sticking around for you know it, it is just a really it's like because it was such a visceral visceral reaction to to that woman and, and being that drunk yeah it, it was it was quite curious yeah, it's it just it's a bit charring, and there's obviously a reason for it. I will say this: whoever's put the show together does seem to have things set up that they're we're heading towards explanations. I'm I'm going to keep my faith in the fact that we'll get them. Um, we we see Evangeline getting the terrible news that her sister's dead. The Coast Guard calls. Um, she takes it very calmly and and tells Peter to go home to his family and then she goes out to the lighthouse. When she gets there, she's on her way there. She sees that that the abusive prick from the original um uh one of the the first episode, um 
the guy who'd been um, physically abusive towards his wife and he gives her the finger as he's pa- as, as she's passing on the way to the lighthouse and as you said then later on she she tears up the lighthouse she's got thor- thoroughly disproportionate rage about um uh, the the lack of care that that her sister received the guy tries to point out look it's an open facility i mean we we, can, we don't hold people we don't monitor people they're here at their own behest um but the rage in her is huge, and she mm. then sees that guy, and she takes it out on him, stops her car, uh, attacks him, and then gets roundly pummeled for her for her um, troubles. Uh, just then, we're juxtaposing that with Liz crashing her car into mm. the snow, and the one-eyed polar bear coming right up the window and looking in. Um, and then Evangeline goes to see Kavik, and that's her default setting. Uh we see the a lot of talk about being alone and she's very, very much in a low place and he's trying to reassure her at one stage he gets down his knees. It looks like he's going to propose and uh, he actually is just doing it to distract her so he can straight, straighten out one of her, um, uh, what do you call it? Dislocated fingers. Mm. And she howls in such pain here, Dave, that I thought, my God, it's really actually interesting because it's only then when she's in pain that she can be vulnerable to the extent that she can accept his affection. Yeah. Um, she's a very troubled soul is Evangeline. She is. Um, I thought like as well, like when she was, cause she was saying to Kavak, you're alone. Why, why are you alone? And he says to her, mm. not. And part of why he's not is because he has her. Because I think he sees her as more than just a friend with benefits. You know, I think he's got far more affection for her. But obviously she has these walls up that she doesn't want to let him in. And he's very much playing the slow game of, you know, trying to break down those walls and, and let her know that she has somebody. She's not on her own, that he's willing to look after her. And you see how affectionate he is when he's trying to dab away some of the blood and that. But what I thought was was interesting with that was like when he, like you said, she gets quite vulnerable and quite relaxed, and then he snaps her fingers back into or finger back into place, and she howls in pain. But it was almost like she didn't realize how much pain and trauma her body was in yeah. until that, because she had maybe been in a disassociative state when. The violence, like the, the violent reaction in the lighthouse, your man behind the counter was a big lump of a lad. And he was terrified of her. Yeah. And then the fight, it, it almost made it seem like that fight was an out of body exper- experience for her. And she's clearly like she has had lumps kicked out of her, gotten back in her car, driven to Kavik's uh, place and not really seemed to snap back to reality at any point. From when she finds out about her sister, she gets that phone call. It's almost like she slips conscience, uh, consciousness and then doesn't come back until Kavak puts her finger back into place. The yeah. other thing just with, with the sister that I thought was really interesting is clearly when, when, when Danvers meets her the first time and she's stripping the clothes off, she's just stripping them off and letting them fall on the ground. The second time she does it, she mm. folds everything really neatly. Everything's left very regimented and proper. And then she makes the walk out. Like, like the Salal scientists. Exactly. And I thought that was really, really interesting. 
It is. Uh, but uh, And the only difference is that there's a calm to her. She knowingly walks to the water, whereas those guys, when they were doing it, like you pointed out earlier on, there was something that was actually terrifying them. But you wonder, were they on their way and then that terror came? Had they just done a similar thing to um, Julia and then then the, the fear uh, descended? It's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. And then we're getting to, I think, which is, this is kind of i think the high point last episode the the end was really very very strong it was actually remarkable with two big set piece scenes and we have one here is not as much stuff happens here but it's no it's, that's not true more uh, just as much stuff happens here it's very 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 um affecting the end of the show it starts with we see liz having a dream um and she's it's it's an icy graveyard which is, is kind of juxtaposed with her and Holden under a blanket, singing twist and shout. And like I said, he's covering his eye. Now, bear in mind, it, I know this sounds like I'm getting obsessive, but for the next couple of scenes, Evangeline has a really fucked up eye. I, is that a coincidence? I don't know. Um, I don't think so. So Navarro gets to Liz's house and wakes her up. Um, she's lost the stone spiral. That will. Uh, you remember when you were a kid in Neighbours and you're watching Neighbours or Home and Away or something, and um, you didn't see, lose it though. She didn't lose it. No, because Kavak asked her what it was. That's right. So it's at his gaff. Yeah, but she's she's because she's blanked most of like she wasn't in her own right state of mind. She doesn't remember that. Yeah, it's a very she good She just point. thinks she lost it probably in the yeah. fight somewhere. But I think I think it's relevant that she thinks she's lost it. Mm. I'll tell you, I, I, what I was saying there is like, if you if you remember like watching some crappy sitcom when you were, when you were a kid or, 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 or like a soap and you'd see the director says, now go in for a close up on those keys or now go over to Bouncer and make sure you see that Bouncer the dog looks a bit unhappy. And as it, everyone watching this says, well, obviously this is going to come back later, right? So I thought that it was a little bit, it was a bit of an obvious question. I would imagine it's going to have some re- relevance. Maybe we're going to see Kavik, like you say, in some way being affected by that thing. Let's see how that works. But there's an interaction between the two of them. And we see Danvers at our most sort of... Um, rejecting any concept of the supernatural she goes in several rants she says dead people are dead there's no heaven there's no hell there's no ghost there's nobody out there watching us and you know she i think evangeline says well, why do you keep that toy around because i won't say she says is was that his and and and, and liz because remember evangeline had a dream where she saw um holden's arm and she saw the the toy um and she says was that his and liz ignores it and she says well, why, why do you keep that thing around and she goes and throws it out in the snow um and she comes back in continuing around there's nothing she says except us we're here all alone the dead are gone they're fucking gone she says and at that point evangeline decides it'd be a good idea to tell her about her sister um being dead and of course danvers feels shitty about it it calms down a bit and we find out that the sister had been uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia, with bipolar, with borderline personality disorder. But Evangeline doesn't think it's any of those things. Evangeline is now firmly convinced that it, like you referred to earlier on, 
takes us one by one. And she says, you know who's next? Now, Liz can't handle this. Liz says, listen, you're an intelligent woman. That was really pointed comment because that's Liz saying, no, let's ask the right questions. Let's get back to the science here. Let's, uh, you know, let's put our faith in, 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 in rationality. But Evangeline is not for turning. She says, I failed her. She says, it's a curse. Something calls us and we follow it. It comes for us, she says. And at this point, then we get this second flashback to the Wheeler thing. Because Liz says, you're doing the thing you did with Wheeler. You saw something. It was a ghost or a spirit. And then we see that freaky flashback where Evangeline is staring. Liz can't see what she sees. It's like the scene in, in Macbeth the, the, with, with, with um, Banquo's ghost. But it's a screaming, screeching, horrifying um, version of the lady who's been killed. And Evangeline um, says that she didn't see anything. Liz calls her a liar and Evangeline storms out. It's a powerful set piece that, Dave. It's a really good scene. It's a really good scene. And it's, it's again, it's an insight into Danvers and the, the pain that she carries with her. The dead are gone. They're just gone. Obviously, a reference to her, her son, her ex. We've, we've obviously, you know, the, the other couple of breadcrumbs that we mentioned earlier, maybe potentially killed by a drunk driver, something, or maybe the husband was drunk when he drove, something like that. We've heard from um, Christopher uh, Eccleston's character that, you know, she was bad before. She was always a bit of an arsehole. Then she became a full-blown arsehole after that. So, again, that points to where her most of her damage comes from. We've heard her say there is no God. It's a commonly held view that if there is a God, why does a God let children die? You know, so maybe at one point Danvers was a bit more open minded, a bit more religious, a bit more spiritual and has been hardened against any of that because of what happened. But then when Navarro mentions her sister dying, she does immediately soften. And like you said, she feel you can you can tell she feels terrible for what she said because she understands that both, you know, Navarro's lost her sister and Navarro does believe in that type of stuff. So now you're basically, you know, her sister's dead and now you're saying that she's gone forever. You know, she's she's not gonna have that that spiritual link that the the uh, native folk would would have you know, rely on when somebody passes away. Um, it's a really powerful scene. And just that, the scene of her, you know, throwing the, the, the toy out, almost as if, because it's in an evidence box, remember? Like it's, when, it, when, when she lifts the evidence box and the arse falls out of it, the toy falls out of the box. Yeah. So why is it in an evidence box? Yeah, that's a good clearly point. Clearly an, un, an unsolved crime. Brilliant. Or, I hadn't or, thought about that. you know? So, uh, or maybe, look, maybe it's just that uh, that's how she keeps things in her own house because she can't separate work from home life anymore. Maybe she's so wrapped up in her work that everything gets put into evidence boxes. You know, there could be that side of it as well. But it is a really powerful scene. And again, it, it shows that there's, there's obviously this division between them, but there is more than just this sort of, you know, fondness. There's, there's a real 
connection between the two. You can tell that they at one point were much more than just partners on the job. They were very, very close at one point, and there is a lot of care. And Danvers, being that bit older, does sort of look out for Navarro a little bit, maybe kind of feels like an older sister towards her or whatever. So it's a really, really good scene. It's really well paced as well. Like, they don't try and rush into anything. When when Navarro comes in, there's no blurting out of my sister's just died or anything. They wait and they wait and they wait. And then they drop that line at the key point. Absolutely. And I'm reminded, I thought you mentioned the word sister, that I forgot earlier on a little important detail that people will be screaming at their um, various devices that we should mention here as well, because the orange returned earlier on, because the, the, we, we see the lead up to what happens to Evangeline's sister. And she's sitting there in the lighthouse and an orange rolls out from under the bed in the same way as it happened to Evangelina in the ice. And for the first time of about three times, there's a horrible screeching presence somewhere in this episode. And when she looks under the bed, which I I would imagine has literally ruined the childhood of several um, people who are watching this at, at an age way too young to be watching it, under the bed, it seems to be her mother. She's got that crucifix anyway. And we see a hand move. We see the eye open and we hear that screeching sound. And that's the final uh, straw for uh, Julie, who at that point, um, the next time we see her, she's walking naked towards the water. And we're now getting to the final kind of uh, scene of this particular episode. And we were brought there by the fact that just as Navarro is um, taken off in her truck, after falling out with Liz again, um, the Liz arrives with a picture on her phone of Clark, and Clark is wearing the pink parka and he's out at the dredges, um, and this is a whole new thing for us. This, um, you know, the the idea of this old technology that used to be very much part of their lives when they were young. Evangeline says she remembers it um, being very much part of their lives. It was a very impressive thing. And now it's apparently out there uh, rotting and, 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 and falling apart um, and, you know, forgotten. And Liz actually with a very revealing line says, yeah, well, aren't we all? Um, and when we get there to the dredges, the first thing we see is a sign that says keep off the grass, which is mad, right? It's spray painted onto some metallic thing inside a whole big metallic shell in a big metallic uh, um, um, structure. Um, weird. Then we see the spiral on the wall. And by the way, the keep off the grass thing could, at a stretch, be a, a season one reference. It could be. Because when we see the big bad from season one for the first time, he's on a little uh, ride on lawnmower. And that one of those scenes are in the background. Um, as they're making their way around, trying to explore this place, the dredges, and it's all, like you say, gantries and ladders and um, metal platforms, we hear a voice as... Liz has just moved on and it calls out to Evangeline and she stops and Liz goes on and Evangeline pauses and sees her sister below floating by in a sort of a, oh, it's like a, like a, a kind of a canal um, underneath. 
we hear distorted music. Oh, sorry. Um, w- w- as she goes down to inve- investigate, um, we can see wet footprints coming out from that, whatever that sort of artificial channel is that the water was in. And we see wet footprints, bare, bare feet coming out of it. Um, and in the background, then we, we see a, a Christmas tree all lit up. There's some distorted music that comes on. Um, and of course you get your, fantastic jump scare when uh, when um, Evangeline turns around and there's a freaky screaming version of what looks like her sister right in her face um which is it's shocking it's properly scary it really works it got me I was how you're expecting it you know something's coming but it really fair play they 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 did there's something about that open mouth thing and the the high pitch that whatever pitch they've got that scream out is yeah genuinely unnerving and by the time Danvers gets there Evangeline is bleeding from the ear she's in some sort of catatonic state and it's 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 it, it's bad. That's how the episode ends. But there's also this parallel thing happening, Dave, where um, Liz is off on her own chase. She's chasing the 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 the, the original sound that they they heard. Turns out it's Otis. Uh, when she gets there, he is in a pink parka. He's standing in a really weird way with his head down and the hood down, pulled down over his face. Um, the jacket, the parka, has one of those yellow smiley faces on it, which could be a throwaway reference to smiley face killer and all those kind of things that um, seem to have that one particular symbol in common. Um, but Otis comes out with a few great lines. Um, where's Clark? He's asked. He's gone. He says he went back down to hide. Fantastic. Where's where's he gone down to? What's he hiding from? And he continues. He's hiding in the night country. And then we're all in the night country now. Uh, I have to say, as 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 endings go, again nailed because mm. it was just that two parter thing going on at the same time. They're both having their revelations. Obviously, Evangeline's is a bit more horrific. It seems to have had this impact on her. Like I said, when Liz finds her, she's bleeding from her ear and she looks borderline catatonic. But the oldest thing is really interesting as well. What sort of creature is he? What does he mean by Clark's gone down to hide? What does he mean by we're all in the night country? And three cheers for the fact that we finally got around to hearing the night country, which is, of course, what the whole season is called. It's, it's a strong ending, Dave. I really liked it. Yeah, it's a brilliant ending. It, it's a genuinely brilliant ending. And um, it, it does sort of... The, the, the oldest scene, obviously, there's like you said, there's those two things happening at one place where Danvers has pursued Otis and kind of cornered him, and Navarro has had a vision and gone off. And, and again, like we said earlier, almost ha- she seems to ha- be having some sort of out of body uh, experience. And when Danvers pushes her hair back, and you see you see her bleeding from the ear. And you you kind of wondering is that is that something that's just happened now is that from the fight because it's it's not that long since the fight it's not but wasn't burst eardrums and burnt corneas the two the two things, two things. That the the previous that the all the Salal people had in common that's very true that's very very true um it's a really good it's a really good ending to an episode 
like it's a really good ending because it, it just raises more questions. Like yeah. it's brilliant. It gives us some answers and then raises 20 more questions. And the oldest thing is, is really good. Like, cause he's clearly, he's been through some stuff. He's seen some bits and he's got the burst cornea. He's clearly terrified out of his mind with fear panicked doesn't really seem to know where he is like you said the way he answers the questions about about clark the line we're all in the night country and like it's really really good it's really really good and it sets up the last two episodes to be potentially massive I, I won't i won't lie to you because i've got so ho- such high expectations for this because it was um it, because we've committed to this show and i want it to be good because of this show as much as anything else to be perfectly honest um there were times during this episode where i was going you know i was getting a little bit nervous about the fact that it was just playing out like almost in places you had the comedian comedic bits you had the 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 character building and all that kind of thing but they're just the like a, like i said alluded to earlier on vaguely pedestrian aspect of just you drip fed little bits to help develop um the various characters but yet again stuck the ending like a like a boss here because like you say we're left with more questions than answers and like i started off the show i've all those questions like why is liz not rattled by the bear thing why do all of these things when they appear seem to be pointing uh, and what's the screeching noises about and why do people see things in ennis and what are all the eye things about the constant eye symbolism um you know is there a cult here? What's the the swirl, uh, the, the the whole thing around the swirl? Is there going to be some sort of cult at the back of it? Um, and again, even just simple things like what's the lighthouse and the idea of light and dark in this? Is it being used in a really obvious way or in a way that's a little bit different? I'm absolutely delighted with the fact that I'm left with all these questions as we go into the last two episodes. And if people are, in, are interested in enjoying it, like Dave says, we have two left um, as episode five and six will play out. And then we will do at least one kind of recap. And depending on your responses at that point, we might do another kind of answering questions one or something mm. like that, just to round out the whole thing in a kind of eight episode bundle. Um little bit of inside baseball want to just say we are genuinely both enjoying the hell out of this um it's a new departure for us but not exactly a new departure for us in terms of interest new departure for us in terms of being able to do on a regular basis something that we kind of do have an interest in that we're not just these one trick football ponies so we do appreciate your support we do appreciate the kind comments we do appreciate anything you have by way of setting your ears towards this it is um an important thing i think it's safe to say to both of us i don't think i'm talking outside of school there dave to say that we do really want to build this show so if you're liking it you know that this isn't like the Liverpool shows. This is something that you can tell anyone about and they don't have to be a football fan. So please do that. I think that's a fair thing to say, Dave, if we could get anything from folks at all, it would be just really, really, really appreciated if they'd spread the word. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. As I've, I've said this a few times, it, it's the most enjoyable thing that I'm doing right now, podcast wise. And it's something that's important to both of us that we, we do really want to, make it you know a good swing at like 
And the more ears that this falls on, the better. And we would be greatly appreciative of, of any help in growing this new little adventure for the two of us. For sure. And we will be back with episode five next week. And we will be back with our second one of the week very soon as well. I think we can reveal that it's going to be a sci-fi classic Predator. I did, by the way, and there's there's a chap who's going to be listening this evening. And I want to just say... I'm I'm not ignoring your advice. I did get a, a DM, Dave. Someone said, you know, maybe don't do these big popular movies. Maybe do something that's slightly, you know, um, less well known. And I, I think we can reassure people that if this show takes hold, we'll absolutely go down those routes. Oh yeah. But but for now, you'll have to forgive us. We're trying to be a little bit populist. That's the whole idea. We want to make this show, um, you know, interesting to as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Yeah, I'm like. So, Predator is is one of the quintessential 80s movies. And we did The Rock, which was a quintessential 90s movie. But the other factor as well is that Carl Weathers passed away. And we wanted to do something that was, you know, yeah. a little bit of a tribute to him. And Rocky was just far too obvious, you know. So Predator just seemed like the right way. And I have to say, I've seen it a bunch of times I rarely enjoyed rewatching something as much as I did watching Predator. I watched it last night and absolutely loved it. Oh, same as that, same as that man. I wasn't expecting to, like I had these cliched ideas cause I honestly hadn't seen it in probably a couple of decades. And, um, Really looking forward to the chat on that one. So that will be our second one of the week. We will be back with episode five and another film. Um, for you uh, in the week to come and all the succeeding weeks to come assuming neither of us uh, dies of consumptive fits in the meantime but I think we're going to be on the mend at that stage so thanks for your ears, thanks for your attention I've been Trev Denny, that's Dave Hendrick, this is Buzz and we'll be back with you very soon Sports Social Podcast Network